I'm Alicia, and this is Dead On. Head On is a true crime podcast that covers upsetting and sensitive topics, including violent crime, assault, rape, abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. I'm under no illusion that my city is some kind of crime-free utopia. But let me tell you something. Sydney in the 70s and 80s made Sodom and Gomorrah look like Nana's knitting circle. I'm talking fast and loose drug use, profligate crime, and the piece de resistance, police corruption that bordered on organized crime. It was a cracking setup for Sydney's criminal underbelly. It was easy enough to keep the coppers off your back. Just pad their pockets with some extra cash and be on your way. But this level of corruption and criminality is bound to be exposed sooner or later, a ticking time bomb that would eventually explode, laying waste to criminal empires and obliterating the careers of decorated detectives. And the one who lit the match was the last person any of them saw coming. A woman named Sally Ann Huckstep. She's been called a whistleblower, a heroin addict, and so many things that are much, much worse. But this brave woman didn't just blow the whistle on the most dangerous people in Sydney. She blew the lid off Sydney's criminal underbelly in spectacular fashion. In 1981, Sally Ann Huckstep went on 60 Minutes Australia and spilled the beans to the host at the time, Ray Martin, telling him that she was a sex worker, that her ex-husband was a criminal, and that she'd been paying off the police for the last 10 years so that neither of them would be arrested. According to Sally Ann, quote, I paid the police many times. I would have been quite happy to go on paying the police, because it's a way of life, and it's the way you survive, end quote. But that's not all. According to Sally Ann, members of the police force weren't just paid to turn a blind eye to criminal activity, They were also involved in the drug trade themselves, that members of the police were involved in the heroin trade. Which brings us to the catalyst for Sally Ann's bold, brazen interview. Her dearly departed boyfriend, Warren Lanfranchi, had just been gunned down by police. While the police painted it as self-defense in the pursuit of an arrest, the truth may have been much more sinister. According to Sally Ann, Warren had ripped off another heroin dealer, and that dealer had connections in the police force. Sally Ann explained, quote, Heroin ripoffs are a pretty common thing in the heroin business. Because a heroin dealer can't ring the police up and say, well, look, this guy just ripped me off. Unless, of course, he's working for the police. End quote. 
Realizing the danger that Sally Ann would face after this bold admission, TV presenter Ray Martin said, quote, You surely can't stay in Australia if what you say is correct. End quote. With a steady air of grave determination, Sally Ann responded, quote, No, I have to leave the country, not only because of the police, but a lot of criminals are going to be very upset with me. I've upset the balance. A lot of detectives, I suppose, are going to be scared. It's going to be a lot harder for criminals to get away with a lot of things. But it had to be done. End quote. As she predicted, this explosive interview earned a bounty on Sally Ann's head. So who was this bold, brave woman? Who dared to stare down the criminal underworld, the crooked cops, and TV presenter Ray Martin without breaking a sweat? Sally Ann Krivishow was born in Sydney in 1954. Sally Ann's sister, Deborah, was born 18 months later. Their mother, Pat, skipped town when the girls were only knee-high to a grasshopper, leaving their father, Jack Krivishow, a single father. Jack, with the girls in tow, moved to a unit in North Bondi, a beach suburb in Sydney. The unit was a bit of a crowded house. As they shared the space with the girls' strict Jewish grandmother, their uncle Ike, and Aunt Rose. Jack was a keen photographer who drove cabs at night to make ends meet. Planning a bright future for the girls, he enrolled them at the prestigious Mariah College. Now, I'd never heard of the school before, so I hit up Google to find out more. According to their website, quote, Mariah College is an independent, co-educational, modern, orthodox Zionist Jewish school, which prides itself on providing the highest standard of Jewish education, end quote. Sally Ann and Deborah were stunningly beautiful. They had huge blue eyes, high cheekbones, and sun-kissed blonde hair. Their looks were so striking that they cleaned up a few modeling jobs, including for Meyer, a massive department store here in Australia. Sounds like everything's on the up and up, right? Unfortunately, this is where everything appears to have hit the skids. Their father, Jack, met and married a woman named Estelle. According to Deborah, Estelle viewed Sally Ann as a threat. It was like oil and water from the very beginning. And sadly, this badly affected the relationship between Jack and his daughters. Their relationship deteriorated to the point that Jack called the children's court and asked that Sally Ann be removed from the family home. At just 14 years old, Sally Ann was taken to the Minda Romand Center in Lidcombe, a bit of a juvenile detention center of the day. When she was released, Sally Ann found work as a waitress at King's Cross nightclub, Whiskey A Go-Go. For those unfamiliar with the Sydney area, King's Cross is located in inner-city Sydney. For decades, the cross was the center of Sydney's party scene. But underneath the glitz and glamour facade of the nightlife scene laid a dark criminal element, a black hole of drugs and crime into which many fell and never returned. According to Sally Ann's sister, Deborah, quote, My sister got caught up in the criminal system at a very early age. I think the drug abuse was just something that happened to a lot of people in the 70s. There was very little information about drugs at that time, and cocaine and heroin were readily available. Some people dabbled, and for others, the habit became entrenched. 
I think this happened to my sister. It started as a guilty pleasure and turned into a lifelong addiction. End quote. To fund her drug habits, Sally Ann turned to sex work, which is how she came into contact with Vice Squad and Drug Squad detectives, and, by her own admission, began paying them off to turn a blind eye. At some point, Sally Ann met and married Brian Huckstep. Together, the couple had a daughter, Sasha, in 1973. To be clear, this is the criminal husband that Sally Ann referred to in her interview. Sadly, this marriage wouldn't last. Despite her relationship with police, Sally Ann was ordered by the courts to undertake treatment in 1974 and sent to the notorious private hospital at Chelmsford, where she was under the care of psychiatrist Harry Bailey. Unfortunately, Sally Ann was worse off from the treatment than when she arrived at the facility. Deborah recalled, quote, She couldn't talk. She couldn't walk. They'd given her 14 shock treatments over 15 days. I took my sister and her daughter, Sasha, back to New Zealand and cared for her for months. She was addicted to two and all, a barbiturate they used in high doses to keep her unconscious while they inflicted electric shock treatment on the addiction center of her brain. End quote. According to Deborah, Sally Ann was never the same after Chelmsford. After returning to Sydney, Sally Ann met 22-year-old Warren Lanfranchi. Warren had a thick mop of dark hair, a clean-shaven, fresh face, and looked a bit like a young Nicolas Cage. Apparently, it was sparks from the word go, because Sally Ann and Warren moved in together in early 1981, just two weeks after meeting. It seems that Sally Ann had a bit of a type. Her ex was a criminal. Naturally, Warren was too. In fact, he was fresh out of Long Bay Prison when they met. While he was locked up at Long Bay, Warren made friends with Arthur Nettie Smith, one of the highest-grossing, most notorious heroin dealers in Sydney. Realizing he could bank a lot more money selling heroin, Warren asked Nettie to hook him up when they were both out of the clink and back on the street. Just like that, Warren graduated from theft to dealing drugs for one of the largest traffickers in Sydney. Now, this is where multiple versions of the story come into play. The proverbial he said, she said that blurs the lines between fact and fiction to the point of illegibility. One common thread is Warren's heroin connection, Nettie Smith. Another is Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson of the Armed Hold-Up Squad. A bit about Dodgy Rogy. Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson had a reputation of being Sydney's most feared and fearless detective. Rumors were circulating that Roger was slated to be police commissioner one day. But underneath this pretense of bold law enforcement lay a rotten core. Roger was as crooked as a dog's hind leg. Here's Sally Ann's side of the story. You'd think making 10 large a week, over 40 grand in today's money, would have been enough for Warren. But like Icarus, it wasn't a lofty enough height for the aspiring drug lord. On June 6, 1981, Warren conducted a heroin ripoff that was worth $37,000, roughly $148,000 in today's money. Bad news for Warren, he ripped off the wrong heroin dealer, a dealer that was allegedly well-connected with certain high-profile members of the police force. To add insult to injury, 
he didn't tip off his mate, Nettie Smith, before he did it. Now, both the cops and the dealer were out for revenge. According to Sally Ann, this wrong move had effectively signed Warren Lamfranchi's death warrant. Here's Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson's side of the story. Warren was wanted for armed robbery and attempted murder. Nettie Smith worked as an informant for Roger, so Roger pressured Nettie to arrange a meeting. According to Roger, he wanted Warren to give himself up to be taken into custody, peacefully. As requested, Nettie Smith arranged a meeting between Warren and Roger. One thing all parties can agree upon is that Warren intended to offer Roger a bribe. According to Sally Ann, the bribe was to smooth over the aftermath of the heroin ripoff. According to Roger, it was an attempt to dodge charges of armed robbery and attempted murder. From the start, Sally Ann didn't trust this meeting, saying, quote, It didn't seem right to me. I couldn't understand why Ned was doing all this for Warren, you know? End quote. It was agreed that Warren would turn up to the meeting unarmed and that he wouldn't wear a coat or any other bulky clothing that could conceal a weapon. Sally Ann was worried about this proposition. She pleaded with Warren to bring a weapon, but Warren insisted that he wouldn't, saying, quote, As long as I stick to my bargain, Ned will make sure they're not armed. Ned's fixed it all up, end quote. On June 27th, 1981, Warren told Sally Ann he was headed out to the meeting with Roger. As you can probably imagine, Sally Ann didn't want him to go. She knew this was a dangerous game. Sally Ann recalled, quote, I kissed him at the door and asked him what time he thought he'd be back, because I'd be worried. I didn't want him to go. He said he didn't know what time he'd be home, but if he wasn't home by six o'clock, then I'd know he'd been killed, end quote. As Warren was walking out the door, Sally Ann asked him to bring some flowers home for her. Apparently, Warren replied, quote, Well, darling, you never know. You could be sending me flowers. End quote. Sounds a bit cheeky and sweet, right? Unfortunately, that charming tete-a-tete between lovers hid an undercurrent of grave understanding. By flowers, Warren meant funeral flowers. Ultimately, Warren had predicted his own fate. At about 2.50 p.m., Roger and Warren met face-to-face on Beaumont Street in Chippendale. Allegedly, Warren offered Roger $30,000 to dodge charges of armed robbery and attempted murder. As the pair walked the streets, they spoke about Warren's offer. While they negotiated, they wandered from Beaumont Street to Dangar Place. According to Roger, Warren said, quote, Look, I can't do any more jail. Are we going to do business? End quote. To which Roger retorted, quote, There is no business. We are here to arrest you. End quote. According to Roger, Sergeant Brian Harding and Constable Rod Moore pulled up on them in a white Volvo. After noticing the Volvo loaded with armed backup, Warren realized the jig was up. Warren backed away and reached down the front of his trousers pulling out a revolver and pointing it at Roger. Without hesitation, Roger reached behind his back, grabbed his service revolver where it was tucked into his belt, and fired at Warren, hitting Warren in the right side of the chest. Warren reeled backwards, backing away from Roger. 
Thinking Warren was not yet incapacitated, Roger fired a second shot, this time hitting him in the neck just below his left ear. However it went down that day, no matter whose story you believe, only Roger Rogerson and Warren Lanfranchi know how the events unfolded. One of them is dead, the other in prison. I don't think we'll ever know the true and full story of the events at Dangar Place. Following the shooting, the newspapers went absolutely wild, giving the tragic event the moniker High Noon in Dangar Place. Roger Rogerson was touted as a cowboy hero that protected Sydney from the dangerous criminal element. He probably thought he'd rest on his laurels and collect a hero's accolades. That is, until Sally Ann came along. After losing Warren, she was ready to burn it all to the ground. Two weeks after Warren's death, Sally Ann spoke to internal affairs investigators at police headquarters, giving them a detailed account of every single payment she made to Vice Squad and Drug Squad detectives over the entire 10-year span that she'd been paying them off. The police commissioner, Jim Lease, declared that the Internal Affairs Bureau was investigating the shooting. Then, Sally Ann went to 60 Minutes and shared every sordid detail of her criminal activities and connections. On national television, no less. Bowled over by the gravity of Sally Ann's admissions, Ray Martin said, quote, Sally, these are extraordinary charges. It's the sort of thing you'd expect to hear from Hollywood, not in suburban Australia. End quote. Sally Ann responded, quote, I know that, but it is happening here. And I know it sounds unbelievable, but it's real. And it's happening. End quote. Ray Martin asked her, quote, Do you think the police had any idea that you would take this line? That they would expect you to lie low? To keep quiet? End quote. After a brief pause, Sally Ann responded, quote, I think the police thought I'd shut my mouth, as I've kept quiet all these years. End quote. Explaining her motivations for speaking her truth, Sally Ann said, quote, When the police become judge, jury, and executioner, then somebody has to speak up. Somebody has to come forward. Somebody has to start somewhere and stop it. This is real. This is not something I've made up in revenge or in anger. This is just cold, bare fact. End quote. Yes, Sally Ann was a sex worker. Yes, she was addicted to heroin. Yes, her lovers were criminals. And yes, she bribed the police. She routinely broke the law without batting an eyelash. But still, Sally Ann was a woman of principle. She was honest about who she was, and couldn't stand that certain corrupt members of the police hid behind a shield of righteous lawfulness. Meanwhile, these same people were arguably the most dangerous criminals of all. Following the interview, Deborah recalled, quote, After Warren's death, Sally knew that she had a bounty on her head because she spoke out about Rogerson and his gang of criminals. She knew her time was limited, end quote. After hearing Sally Ann's interview, Roger spoke to the Sun Herald, he claimed that everything Sally Ann said was complete crap, that he never planned to accept a bribe, and vehemently denied killing Warren over a heroin ripoff. Roger elaborated, quote, I'm telling you the honest truth. 
I'd never heard of Lanfranchi before Ned Smith approached me. Why would I have taken another 17 cops with me if I was going to take money from him? End quote. Sally Ann's story was compelling, but was it enough to cast doubt on Roger's version of events? As Sally Ann asserted, Warren hadn't brought a weapon with him to the meeting. So it was curious that the gun lying next to Warren's body was an 80-year-old Harrington and Richardson 38 revolver. Curious or still, the weapon had a defective trigger return spring, meaning the hammerless revolver was incapable of firing more than one shot at a time. Warren's father, Keith Lanfranchi, 52, was a licensed pistol dealer, giving Warren ample access to any number of firearms particularly ones that worked properly. Keith was concerned about the course of the police investigation, saying, quote, I don't think the state police should be investigating themselves. It should be an entirely independent investigation, end quote. And frankly, he's right. If the claims of widespread corruption were true, surely the police would sweep their own mess under the rug. Keith's not a rat, and he wasn't the only one. Two nights before Warren was killed, he allegedly told his brother Daryl, quote, Rogerson might murder me or accept the money, end quote. But not only that, Daryl had this to say about the 80-year-old revolver, quote, Warren used to go shooting with me and dad. He wasn't stupid. Who'd carry a heap of junk, a gun with a broken trigger, to meet an armed hold-up detective, end quote. On November 2nd, 1981, a coronial inquest was held to investigate the death of Warren Lanfranchi. Sally Ann was called to give evidence at the inquest. Like her 60 Minutes interview, Sally Ann came across as bright, intelligent, and frankly, a bit cheeky. Brian Murphy, Queen's counsel, represented Roger Rogerson at the inquest. When questioned, she delivered a few barbs you're gonna love. Brian Murphy asked, quote, Incidentally, on one of these drug ripoffs, did he tell you that he'd forced someone into the boot of a car and locked them in there? Be a lot easier to do with a gun, wouldn't it? End quote. To which Sally Ann retorted, quote, I don't, well, I've never forced anyone into the boot of a car, Mr. Murphy, have you? End quote. Between the 60 Minutes interview and the inquest, the media was going absolutely rabid for Sally Ann. She was fearless. She was striking. And she didn't break a sweat, no matter who turned the heat on her. Every day of the hearing, Sally Ann appeared on radio and or national TV. Her photos were splashed across the front pages of all the major newspapers. She was a bit of an enigma. To underestimate Sally Ann would be at your own peril. Ultimately, the jury found that Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson had shot Warren Lanfranchi while endeavoring to effect an arrest. But they specifically declined the magistrate's proposal that Rogerson acted in the execution of his duty and in self-defense. The media frenzy opened a few doors for Sally Ann. Brian Johns, the former publisher at Penguin, gave her an advance to write a colorful autobiography. She connected with famous author Richard Neville, who helped her share her story, and even moved into the artist Martin Sharp's home in the upper-crust suburb of Bellevue Hill, one of the most prestigious postcodes in Sydney. I mean, the house was called Weirian. That's how you know it was upper-crust and fancy as shit. 
It seemed like Sally Ann was finally finding her way. Of this time, Deborah said, quote, My sister had a very high regard for Martin Sharp. Sally was fascinated by the other artists who lived there. She felt that she had found her people. End quote. On November 26, 1982, the Legislative Assembly met to discuss a number of issues, including the suspicious death of Warren Lanfranchi. The leader of the opposition, John Dowd, called upon the Attorney General to perform a judicial inquiry into the circumstances surrounding Lanfranchi's death. Dowd stated that the matter was extremely urgent. Allegations of widespread corruption were beginning to reach fever pitch. The police were being accused of running drugs, covering up crimes, and accepting bribes on a scale that would place them on par with organized crime. The Australian public skepticism of police was moldering into outright distrust. Failing to respond or investigate these allegations would undoubtedly cause the people to completely lose faith in the government particularly because the coronial inquest had failed to address a number of important issues, leaving a series of burning, unanswered questions about Warren's death. John Dowd was concerned that the coroner had rejected hearing evidence from several key witnesses, including journalists who were at the scene of the shooting, who published verbatim accounts of what Roger Rogerson said following the shooting, and from Warren's father, Keith, regarding, quote, a conversation with his son on 21st June when Warren Lamfranchi said that he was in trouble with Detective Sergeant Rogerson and would have to borrow money to get Rogerson off his back. Similar evidence from Sally Ann Huckstep was also ruled irrelevant. End quote. While this rejection of evidence is dubious enough as it is, Dowd was further concerned that, quote, Although the coroner allowed evidence from a Witness D attacking the character of Warren Lanfranchi, comparable statements from two other criminals making serious allegations about certain police officers were ruled irrelevant. These problems demonstrate the inability of a coroner's inquest, with its restricted terms of reference, to get to the heart of this matter. End quote. Additionally, the coroner was not able to investigate the event that led to the police's alleged interest in Warren in the first place, that heroin ripoff on June 6, 1981. Both Sally Ann and Keith strongly believed that this event was the reason for Warren's death. Why wouldn't the coroner investigate this important lead? On June 6, 1981, the very same day of the ripoff, the armed hold-up squad asked the criminal intelligence unit to locate Warren Lanfranchi. Bit of a coincidence, don't you think? But it gets worse. According to Dowd, quote, Other allegations in the transcripts are that Detective Sergeant Rogerson paid off another witness by giving him heroin, and that Warren Lanfranchi was murdered because he had ripped off certain members of the police force in relation to a heroin deal. End quote. Turns out, Keith's concerns about the investigation also had merit. Dowd elaborated, quote, In the opinion of Mr. Barker, QC, and Mr. Young, the coroner's inquest had all the appearances of being run by the police force, end quote. If that's true, it's corruption of the highest order. No doubt about it, the death of Warren Lanfranchi exposed a hideous underbelly of criminality and corruption, not just within Sydney society, 
but within the police force and government as well. Evan Witten, author and corruption expert, recalled, quote, People who knew how to read between the lines of a newspaper knew Premier Robert Askin and Police Commissioner Norm Allen were corrupt, end quote. Clive Small, a former New South Wales Police Assistant Commissioner, explained that Warren's untimely death had a surprising silver lining, saying that it, quote, was a major trigger for change, particularly when John Avery was appointed commissioner in 1984 to clean up the force, end quote. And it's all because of Sally Ann Huckstep. Her dauntless commitment to exposing this corruption brought about real and effective change. Without her, who knows when or if these changes ever would have happened. Unfortunately, Sally Ann's life took a downward turn in the years following Warren's death. After leaving Martin Sharp's home at Bellevue Hill, Sally Ann was drawn back into drugs and criminal exploits. Like a moth, to the flame. According to Deborah, quote, being addicted to drugs didn't make Sally less of a person. It just made her life more of a struggle, end quote. Richard Neville, who'd worked extensively with Sally Ann as she shared her story with the media, said, quote, Sally was smart and brave, but in the end, she always seemed to fall back into the criminal abyss, where she felt at home, end quote. On the evening of February 6, 1986, Sally Ann received a phone call from Warren Richards, a known associate of Nettie Smith, who was still kicking around in the heroin game, and allegedly had connections to, who else, Roger Rogerson. Warren Richards and Sally Ann arranged to meet so that she could score some drugs. At about 10.55 p.m., Sally Ann told her housemate, Gwen Beecroft, that she was headed out and wouldn't be gone long, only five or ten minutes. Then she hurriedly left their Edgecliffe apartment. Sadly, Sally Ann never returned. At about 8.45 a.m. on February 7, 1986, a jogger was smashing out a morning run through Centennial Park. As he plodded past Busby's Pond, he spotted something floating in the water. Upon closer inspection, he realized it was a person, so he hustled off to the ranger's office to get help. When police arrived on the scene, the ranger and two constables paddled out to retrieve the body from the pond. After towing the body back to shore, they heaved the unfortunate person face down onto the bank. When one of the detectives rolled the body over, they were totally and utterly shocked. That's Huckstep, the detective exclaimed. At just 31 years old, Sally Ann's colorful, adventurous life came to a tragic end, just as she predicted it would, and the persons responsible walked free and clear. No one has ever been arrested in connection with her death. Deborah said, quote, If there is a lesson that Sally Ann would want young women today to take from her life, as short as it was, is to speak out if you see injustice. I love my sister, and I want people to realize how brave and strong she was. End quote. One thing is certain. Sally Ann was right about Roger Rogerson's corruption all along. And next week, you'll find out just how on the money she was. Because I'm digging into the life and crimes of disgraced former detective Roger Rogerson. Okay. That's enough from me. 
If you witness corruption, be brave like Sally Ann and blow the whistle. But do it anonymously because I love you and don't want harm to come to you. Don't try heroin, not even once. And for fuck's sakes, stop committing crimes. Okay, bye. Before I go, I need to shout out an enormous thank you to the people who keep the lights on. The Patreon supporters. In the Dead Ride tier, we have Justin Ware, Haley Hepburn, and Brandy Lewis. Thank you so much for supporting and believing in me. If you love Dead On, and I hope you do, please consider supporting me on Patreon. With your help, I can continue to create this arduous but rewarding labor of love. Dead On, a true crime podcast, is a small, independent production. From research to audio to marketing, I do it all myself, in-house. With your support, the Dead On community will be able to improve, grow, and become a force to be reckoned with. Plus, you'll get access to bonus episodes, exclusive content, and monthly live streams where you can ask me anything you damn well please. Keen to get on board? Find a link to my Patreon in the show notes. That being said, look after yourself first. If you don't have the extra cash, there's other ways you can support the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite streaming service. You can also spread the word on social media. Catch me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle at deadonpodcast. Or search for Dead On, colon, a true crime podcast on YouTube. Special thanks to Fuzz Douglas, the talented musician who created the kick-ass theme music. You can find more of his tunes on SoundCloud. I'll drop a link in the show notes. I'm Alicia, and this is Dead On. Thank you.